I had a psychology teacher at a secular school who was a 60s hippie, and he, uh, he complained that churches had elevated platforms so that the leaders could look down on the people. And it never even occurred to me, maybe it's so that people can see them, but that's another issue entirely. But I thought, well, because today the subject is humility, I'm going to come down here with you, because I'm humble. And, uh, but after uh, Nathan's wonderful introduction, thank you, uh, I feel very proud uh, to be here and to be given this honor today. <clears throat> My wife and I like as often as possible to have a really nice breakfast on Saturday morning. Saturdays are kind of that slower sort of day. And so we have, you know, I'll make coffee and she does everything else. But I'll make coffee and we'll have bacon and eggs and toast and bacon and uh, home fries and bacon. Nathan and I are bacon lovers. It's one of the three valued food groups, right? I forget. Bacon, cheese, and something else. Gravy or something. I don't know. They're all really important, but anyway. Chocolate. Anyway, on this particular, I'm getting off topic, you know. On this particular uh, Saturday morning, we had our lovely breakfast, and my wife had taken an orange, or some, a couple of oranges, and had peeled them, and sectioned them, and laid them on the edge of the plate, nice and decoratively and tastefully. And uh, I was sitting eating breakfast and eating my orange, I looked up and she was looking at me. And I sort of said, what, what's the matter? And she said, I just realized something about you. Now that's scary. So I said, okay, what did you just learn about me? And she said, I just learned that you would never eat an orange if I didn't peel it for you. I just started to laugh. I said, yeah, that's true. I hate peeling oranges. Nobody likes peeling oranges. Am I right? Well, I don't know. It's kind of crazy to even think about. But I hate peeling oranges. They, they spray. They injure people, you know. They... <laughs> You smell like an orange all day long. Hello, I'm Brian. I just had an orange, as you know. You know, and so it's really, it's really one of those things that I hate doing. But she did it for me. Now, <clears throat> I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, "Isn't it cute that she did that for him?" And others of you are thinking, "It will be a cold day before I peel an orange for my husband or my wife." But I want you to know. Uh, if you knew my wife, some of you do, if you knew my wife, you know there's a reason why she peeled it for me. And I'm going to say something really deep now. She peeled my orange for me because she wanted me to have it. I don't know if that's deep or not, but I like it. She peeled it not because I'm pitiful, although that's part of it, but she peeled it because it was important to her. It mattered to her that this breakfast be complete. There's an interesting scripture in Matthew where uh, the two sons of Zebedee, they are, I'm not sure what's going on. They may be arguing about who's more important, right? And along comes their mother, and she intervenes, and she takes it right to Jesus. Okay, Jesus, I got my two sons here, James and John. Which one of them is going to be on your right? Which one's going to be on your left when you, when you build your kingdom? And she takes... Now, I always, I always understood those two boys as just being power-hungry, right? 
They're just, they're just annoying. They just want to be bosses. They just want to be leading the parade into Jerusalem, that sort of thing. And I always understood the mother as being just sort of a meddling, uh, you know, sort of mother who wants just, you know, all things perfect for her boys, and she'll do whatever she can to make that happen. But I, I, I've since sort of changed that attitude. And to me now, that story is about, yeah, it's about power, but it's also about two young men who legitimately wanted something great to happen. And a mother who no doubt had been praying that God's kingdom would come. And then when it sort of became reality that her two sons were very much maybe part of this procession, maybe part of what was going to happen, she legitimately felt proud and wanted them to be part of this. And you know, Jesus doesn't tackle, tackle it very uh, tactfully, perhaps, because, because he says, are you really willing to lead? Because that's, that's a tough thing. Are you really willing to suffer the way I understand suffering? Are you ready for that? And of course, they think that they are. But all I want you to hear today is that sometimes we legitimately want good things, but it's also a bit of a selfish motive underwritten as well. Um, because even today, aren't there mothers and grandmothers who are praying that their children will come to God? And wouldn't it be perfect if when that grandchild or that child comes to God, that they would go to Tyndale and become a pastor or a missionary or a spiritual leader of some sort? Wouldn't that be? That's the subject of many parents' prayers, right? And that's very legitimate. Don't we want, all want that? And yet, within the context of that, leadership in the Christian community is really tough. And we suffer. And it's difficult. We're not sure that we're ready to do that. But somehow, power often gets in the way. In the church. In a school. Power can get in the way of legitimate concerns. Jesus' response uh, is that they will have to suffer. But then, it gets bigger. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the context of this place, I wonder if sometimes we want students to be perfect. We want them to be what we want them to be, already arrived. And I wonder if we put the effort into them that we should. And this isn't a criticism, it's an observation of people. Do we put into people what we should? I'm simply going to tell you about Christine. Christine was someone who was important in my life. I bumped into a pastor friend of mine when I was pastoring, and, uh, and he said, oh, you, you're in Pickering, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, does your constituency sort of go into Oshawa? And I said, well, yeah, I can, I can get to Oshawa. And he said, well, there's a woman from our church. Her name is Christine, and she just moved to Oshawa to be with her family, and she, she, uh, she's in the hospital. She's having cancer surgery. I'd love it if you'd go and visit her. So I said that I would. 
did all my due diligence, phoned the hospital, uh, stopped the reception on the way in, made sure I knew where I was going when I went into the hospital. And I went up, but I'd never met Christine before, so I didn't even know what she looked like. So I thought, well, I'll ask at the nurse's station what she looks like. So I stopped at the nurse's station, and they said, oh, she's in the, that room, and she's the second on the right, and okay. And I just turned to leave, and another nurse happened to overhear the conversation. She said, oh, if you're looking for Christine, she's already left. You, you literally must have met her in the hall. So I probably passed her somehow and didn't realize it. So I called her a couple days later at home, and I had a hard time understanding her. She just kind of mumbled, you know, and I kind of I felt really uncomfortable trying to pull these words out. And uh, what I learned later was that she'd had three or four strokes and had difficulty speaking. Plus, she didn't like to keep her teeth in her mouth, so she would take those out. So that just made it really, really hectic for everybody. And, uh, but that's just the way she was. She's very simple. Um, she had perhaps a slight learning disability. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, I was able to stop in to see her. I took my wife with me. We went into South Oshawa. And if you know Oshawa, it's kind of like you don't want to be there if you don't have to be. And uh, I, uh, we went up to the apartment and uh, knocked on the door. And this, this uh, short, round-faced woman with a, a waddle answered the door, asked us to come in. And two things struck me as soon as we went in the apartment. The first thing was that my wife is allergic to cats, and there was cat hair everywhere. And uh, like literally, you'd sit down, and there'd be a cloud of, of, uh, of cat coming up. And the second thing was there was an overwhelming smell of human urine. And what I learned later as well is that she was uh, incontinent and she literally couldn't afford for protection. You know, you learn these things as time goes on. So we, we sat there, we got to know her a little bit. She introduced us to her adult son who lived with her, who said about two words to us and went back to his room. And, uh, you know, we were a little uncomfortable. What have we got to say? She didn't have much to say. And then she went over to her table and picked up a, a letter and brought it over to me and asked me to read it. So I read the letter. And what the letter was, essentially, was uh, her landlord was looking for some back rent. And uh, it had been taken to a mediator. And she was to meet with a mediator and arrange something re with regard to her rent. And she said to me, do you know any lawyers? And I said, uh, well, not really, you know. And she said, would, would you be able to take me and, uh, and speak for me? And stupidly, I said, yes. So we went. And it was a couple of weeks later. We went to the mediation. And on the way there, she said, I can afford $70 a month. And I said, okay. I didn't know exactly where this was going. But when we got in there, we're speaking to the mediator I said, Christine is bet behind in her rent because of these circumstances. It wasn't her intention. She can afford $70 a month to repay. That's all she has. And they agreed to that. It was kind of, was kind of neat. She, she knew it was going to happen before I did. I'd never done anything like that before. And I was just simply her voice. She was the brains. On the way home, <clears throat> there was a... Uh, I was driving home, and there was with her with me, and there was... Uh, a light turned yellow. And as you know, when you see a yellow light, you know what that means, right? Yeah, you do. Yes, that's what I did. Through the, red, through the yellow light and just barely it turned red. And I was just kind of thinking, oh, brother, you know. And, and I heard her say beside me, she said, I saw that. <laughs> it was so cute, you know. And uh, so we had a good laugh about that. 
She began to come to church when she was feeling better. She had a sister who made cake, decorated cakes. And she would just show up at church with a cake to share with people. And she would think real hard about what scripture to put on the cake so that it would bless the people of the church. She would buy me gifts. Almost regularly, I'd get to church and then she'd have a bag with a gift. Maybe from the dollar store or something, but she'd have this gift. And I, over time, I began to feel uncomfortable. And finally, one day on the way home, I said, Christine, I, you know, I appreciate the gifts, but you really, you don't have to do that. And the back of the car got silent. And I looked in the rearview mirror and she was... I felt terrible. But I didn't know how else to deal with it. And I tried to explain to her, I, I love the gifts, but... It's not a condition of my friendship. She would invite us for meals. She'd put a pot roast on or put it in the oven or whatever and burn it. And she would, uh, she would bake a cake and it would sink on one side and the icing would be all mixed in with the crumbs, you know. And uh, the plates and the silverware would have hardened food from a few meals before on them. But we went there anyway. She was good to us. <clears throat> One time I asked someone from church to take her home after church. It was a person that I thought, this guy can handle it because he's a farmer, he's, uh, he's got an old car. Uh, on that particular day she'd had a bad day and when she got out his car didn't smell very good. And I heard through the grapevine that he would never take her anywhere again. It took him two hours to clean his car. Another time she had an anniversary party for Marilyn and myself, for a wedding anniversary of some description, and she invited everybody from the church, and nobody showed up except us. And, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I thought, what's the matter with people? I mean, she's a beautiful lady. The day came when I announced my resignation from the church, and I did that on a Sunday morning, and, and after church we were at the back having coffee and so on, and I looked up and Christine was sitting by herself. And so I wandered up uh, to the pew she was in, and, and I looked around at her, and she was just a fountain of tears. And I said, Christine, what, are you okay? What's the matter? And she said, she just literally blubbered, I'm never going to see you again. I said, Christine, yeah, you'll see us. We're, we're not, I'm walking away from the church, but we're not leaving the area. We can still be friends. But what I want you to hear is in that moment, as I drove home and thought about the things that were important to Christine, I began to rethink what my friendship was with her. And I realized that I was her friend because I was supposed to be. I mean, I was judging everybody else. They were just too high and mighty to spend time with Christine. But really, if I'd had a choice, if I hadn't been the pastor, would I have been her friend? There was no stimulation, no intellectual stimulation, no talk, no dialogue, no, nothing in her life that could really interest me. She was just her. And I realized that, like James and John, my actions were good, but what really, what really was this about? And I realized that really I was kind of elitist. That I had willingly lowered myself to her level, so to speak. 
I realized that I was humble and I was proud of it. You know what I mean? Look at me, I'm really humble. What's that mean? Probably about then I truly became her friend because she loved me unconditionally. It wasn't mutual. Six months later or so, she went into the hospital a few times through the summer, and we saw her once in a while. She went into the hospital later in November, and we learned that she had cancer again and uh, was not doing well. We went in to visit her, and and uh, I brought up the, the yellow light story. And her one sister was there, and her sister said she'd never seen Christine laugh that hard before as when we told the story with the, about me driving through the yellow light. We had a good visit and prayed with her. <clears throat> we, the second week of December, she passed away. We were invited to officiate the funeral, and I was happy to do that. I met with the family. And uh, as her family sat around, I heard stories about how generous she was. See, I thought she was being generous to me. No, she was just generous. She had all their Christmas presents pre-bought, and Christmas wasn't even there yet. She was happy, and she loved her family, and she loved her friends, the few friends that she had. And I was proud to be her friend. And my heart went out to the people who didn't have time to make her their friend. They didn't learn about the beauty of humility, the beauty of serving and helping and do what you can. Her funeral was one of the proudest moments of my life. I just, I just, it was great to be here and to actually say she was an amazing woman. I don't know what she did. She didn't do anything except that she cared. I invested myself in her, and that's a good thing, I guess. She truly changed me. And in a way, I guess I'm honoring her today because of that amazing servant heart that she had. Now, most of us are staff here, and the zoo is about to begin, right? They're going to start coming in. The seminary students are bad enough, but those UC students, <laughs> right? And they're going to come in, and they're going to be invading us. And if the truth were, be, were to be told, it's a lot easier to spend time and energy on the good-looking ones, the smart ones, the charismatic ones. And there's some other ones that kind of get pushed aside. There are going to be some students who are going to be annoying or spoiled or they don't want to be here, right? There's going to be some students here who are shy or insecure or, like I said, they kind of hover at the edge of everything and, and they don't contribute to student life like we would like them to. I was one of those one day, by the way. And I wonder what we do with them. Is it convenient to take care of the good ones and leave the, the ones who aren't so secure? And I remember uh, one of my first worship services here, after I started working, I sat in here somewhere, and there was a girl standing here. Everybody was worshiping and doing this, and she was just kind of standing there and completely unmoved from what I could see. And I don't usually watch people in worship, but it, was, it struck me that she was not really participating. 
Now, maybe she'd had a bad day. Or maybe she was just completely disconnected. I don't know. I, have, I, have no idea. I don't even know who she is. I wouldn't know her if I saw her. But it, it hit me that people can be in a Christian community, whether it's a church or a college, and get completely ignored. Because really, we like the, the beautiful ones. I know it's a poor analogy. I'm sorry. It's the only one I've got. We can come here and serve breakfast and say, there you go, take it if you want it. Or we as a staff, as a faculty, can peel the orange and say, no, this is really important. We want you to be part of this. We want to help you. We want you to know truth. We want to walk with you in, in, in building your character. That's why we exist. As Christians and as Christian leaders here for the students, that doesn't mean giving up leadership. It means that truth is more important than anything. And we want them to have that. It's not about marketing. We should be nice to students to market Tyndale well. But it's not about marketing either. It's about doing what we should do. To bless and to make a difference. That's what our words say. Jesus got dusty. Jesus talked about being like little children. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He died alone. He was a servant. And because of the way that he served, I would die for him. It's because of the amazing way that he cared that I feel that I have to make a difference. So to all of you, I just want to, and to myself, I want to say, go the extra mile. Those students that are not noticeable, care for them anyway. Bless them. Mentor them. Disciple them. Care about them. They matter. That's what humility is. Giving of me so that you can be more. Let's just bow and pray. Father, we know that we're human and we, we apologize for that, but you understand. So often, Father, we look for the things of power. So often we look for um, to be admired or to be seen as, uh, as something more than we are. But we're all sinners that you've made a difference in. I pray that you'll help us to see the, the unsightly and to sense and to know how to treat those who need you and need our friendship. Make us sensitive and caring as a community. Help us to be yours the way you'd want us to serve. So go with us, and as the year unfolds, we give it all to you. And we thank you for the opportunity to serve you here with them. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.